We've been going through a series uh, on the fifth way, and I know that there are at least three couples in here who are here for the first time. And it's always a challenge when you're doing a series to make each Sunday, each session of the series be self-contained and make sense to everybody uh, who hasn't had the ability to have been with us till now and be building up the material. And so I'm going to try to do that um, this morning as well. We hit uh, two weeks ago the, the main discussion of the main thesis of the book, which is the four ways versus the fifth way. And the name of the book is the fifth way. And the fifth way is Jesus' way, the only way to the Father, the way to truth and life. And uh, we went through these ways. So I guess by way of trying to recap and to just get everybody in the pond together, in the sandbox, um, I want to say a few words here at the outset and then move into this continued look at what the fifth way is. The reason it's so difficult, Jesus' way is so different than the normal ways that we process life. And so even after we get the intellectual concept in, and even if we agree to that intellectual concept, and even if we want to live that concept... It takes so long for it to trickle down and really permeate our cells all the way down to the DNA and make a difference in our lives. And so hitting it a few times like this and looking at it from different facets, I think, is critically important to us to be able to try to get a glimpse of where Jesus is trying to take us because it's really jarring. It's really different, as I said, than the way we normally process life. And why is that? It's because we learn early on that life is about acquisition. Yes? Acquisition. We find out that we have needs. We have important needs. We have physical needs. And the needs are real. And we have to acquire those needs. We have to get those things. Whether it's food or love or clothing, shelter, basic physical needs. Or as we were talking about with uh, Jesus spending his 40 days in the desert and going through those three temptations. And as Henry Nouwen put it, it was a temptation to look for relevance, or we should say the compulsion for relevance, the compulsion for power, the compulsion for attention to be spectacular. Those are basic human needs too. They're psychological, they're emotional, they're spiritual, but they're needs. And so everything that we have learned in life is that we have these needs and people around us are not necessarily going to fill those needs. Amazing. The child is the first one to get betrayed. The child is the first one to get neglected. And as soon as that happens, the child learns, I'm not always going to be taken care of. These needs are not always going to be met. And so I have to go out. I have to find strategies. I have to work. I have to do this. I have to work to be accepted. I have to measure up. I have to do all of these things. Maybe I have to manipulate. Maybe I have to lie, cheat, and steal. Whatever I have to do to survive, to get these needs is what I have to do. And these programs get imprinted and imprinted deep, deeply in us by the time we're adolescents and obviously before then. The obsessions, the compulsions, the addictions, everything that we think we need to do is all there. And it's all about acquiring the thing that we don't have, trying to fill that hole that we feel so deeply. That's what we've learned. And we learn that lesson so well that we think that everything in our lives is going to be filled by acquisition. We think everything is going to be done that way. But eventually... Life mugs us. 
Eventually, life hits us in a way that we are powerless to provide the needs that we've been acquiring all our lives. Life gets around to requiring real meaning and purpose from us. Not just the topical ones that we've been able to provide you know, this, to this point in our lives, but just the process of acquisition gets old sometimes. You're on that hamster wheel. You're trying and you're trying. And after a few decades of that, if you're that old, it gets old. It gets tiring. You begin to wonder, where's the purpose in this? Why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? Why are all these things going through? We need to know why we're here. We need to know who we are. We need to have a sense of identity. And all of those things cannot be gotten through acquisition. We don't go out and get these things. At a certain point in life, we realize we have to look beyond mere acquisition. We have to look beyond just filling and meeting needs in ourselves because there's something else that's primary. There's something else that we're looking for. Our fulfillment is going to come from a different direction. So we set off to continue to acquire meaning and purpose through all of these strategies, all of these ways of acquisition that we have learned so well. And we work and work and it continues to elude us. And I know that I use this story so many times, but it's so pivotal in Jesus' teaching when the rich young man comes to him who has been doing exactly what we're talking about. He's rich. He's done really well for himself. He's called a ruler in one of the synoptic gospels, which means he has status. He has position in his community. And when he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He's asking for exactly what we're talking about. He's asking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment, salvation, which to a Jew is spiritual liberation here and now. And he knows somewhere deep down that he doesn't have these things. For everything that he does have, he knows something is missing. And Jesus says, follow the commandments. This is something else he's been doing. He's been obeying all his life. I've done this since my youth, he tells Jesus. And Jesus knows he's telling them the truth. One of the Gospels says he looks at him and loves him. He understands the sincerity of his question. And what does he tell him? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he can't do it. He's not yet ready to let go of these strategies and these ways of acquisition that have served him so well in so many ways but are a block wall against what he knows he needs. And so he goes away sad. And Jesus turns and said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom, simply because these things that we cling to, these ways of acquisition, especially if they've been successful for us, are so deep, so powerful, give us the illusion of such control that we can't let go. But what Jesus is trying to tell us, without let go, without let going, without letting go, you can't go where I'm going. You're not going to be able to experience the things that we're talking about. We have to sell everything. That's our big clue. Sell everything. Let go of all the things that we think we know. Let go of everything that we think we are in favor of this truth that Jesus says will set us free. Now, here's the thing that makes it even more difficult for us. Our churches do the same thing. Since time immemorial, as soon as three or more are gathered in one place, you have an institution. Did you know that? 
Any of you who have watched kids, it's one thing to watch two, it's quite another to watch three. (laughs) The whole dynamic changes when you have three kids. Rules and fairness and justice becomes absolutely important or you lose the whole thing. It devolves into chaos. So churches are institutions. They're groups of people and they do what any group of people does. Churches are physical. The institutions are physical. They have physical needs. Churches need to eat. And what do churches eat? They eat money. That's their food. That's what they need in order to keep going and doing the things that they do. And so churches need people because people provide the money. And churches eat the money and sometimes they eat the people. You know, it, it turns into this manipulative process. But the church needs to survive. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that the church needs to survive, and we need to, to support that if, it's part of, if we're part of that community. But what the church has done over time is to take those principles of acquisition, the four ways that I talk about, and apply them to the individual in terms of their very salvation. And so the four ways that, that we have talked about in the last couple of weeks, based on the four major sects of Judaism at the time of Jesus the four philosophies of Israel that Josephus talks about, were to yield, to manipulate or influence, to exit and destroy. And each one of those major sects, those groups within Judaism, had that one major way of dealing with the obstacles to their acquisition that they were facing in their lives, namely the Roman Empire, which was the occupiers at the time. And so the churches have adopted these because really they're the four ways that every single one of us has to go about our acquisition. If something is blocking us, if there's a power in our way, whether it's a husband or a wife or it's city hall or a government, we can yield to that power. We can try to influence it or manipulate it. We can run away or we can tear it down. Those are our choices. And it's not that stark in each one of us. There's 360 degrees in the compass rose, right? So you've got southwest and northeast and different combinations, but it's always a combination of those four because those are the tools that we have to use. And the church uses those with us. You know, To yield in church speak is to obey. Obey the law. Tithe. Baptize. You know, do all the things that you're supposed to do, not just according to the scripture, but also according to our tradition, to our way of doing things here at this local body. Obey and you will be rewarded. That's acquisition. If we obey, you know, we're going to get status in the church. If we give and tithe, then we're going to be rewarded monetarily because you can't outgive God. And if we obey the law, then we get to go to heaven. We win God's approval. But it's all based in acquisition, trying to get something that we don't have. There's a fear involved there, the fear of punishment if we don't obey. There's the stick, you know, in place here that motivates people very, very quickly. To manipulate. A lot of churches are about prosperity, to influence. They're about this this way of abundance and prosperity. It's, It's kind of akin to obeying, but it's more of a influencing. It's a manipulating. And now instead of the stick, the fear of punishment, it's the carrot. It's the promise of gaining this thing that we think we need, acquiring the thing that we think we need. Many churches exit. They're separatists. You know, the more dramatic ones go up and build bunkers in Idaho, but there are other churches that see themselves as pulling apart from society, pulling away from even the medical community and finding their own way of doing things that will keep them pure. I think we all have 
familiar with churches who do this. And then there are the, the destroyers. I'm going to read an article here of Christian apologetics in a little bit, just an excerpt, that shows the way of destruction, not so much in killing other people, although churches have done that, and radical Islam is doing that right now and becoming a problem in the world, but just character assassination, just beating people down emotionally, you know, defaming them. This is the way of destruction, to beat down the thing that is in our way, to beat down the thing that is challenging our way of life. And so the church has adopted these and applied them to us as people and told us that these are the ways that you can go about obtaining your salvation with your God in heaven. And the problem is that it doesn't work. But it's been so reinforced in us living our lives as young children, as young adults, trying to get through life, and then our church is mirroring those same ways of acquisition, those habits die really hard. But if we can't sell them, if we can't give them away, if we can't lay them down, Jesus is saying that my way, this fifth way, is never going to be accessible to you. You're never going to be able to get there. You know, The four ways to individual salvation, Jesus is talking to us and he's saying, you can't obey your way to the Father. You can't do it. Well, isn't that what the church is telling us we're supposed to do? Obey. Obedience is the big thing. But Jesus says, no, if you can't exceed that kind of righteousness, then you'll never enter the kingdom, which is the same thing as saying you'll never be in the Father's presence. We can't obey our way into the Father's presence. We can't buy our way into the Father's presence. We can't purify our way into the Father's presence. We can't fight our way into his presence. It doesn't work that way. These are ways of acquiring, bringing something in. But the way to the Father is unlike anything that we've experienced before. There is this good news that Jesus is talking about. It's unlike any good news you've had before. And the way to this good news is unlike any way that you've gotten to good news before. You know, there's only one way, and I'm telling you this way, but it's so radically different. You're going to have to unlearn a whole bunch of things before you're going to be able to start to simply enjoy. Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I know I use this example a lot, but it's, again, so quintessential to look at this message to the eyes of the people who hear the first time. You know, you know the story of Dorothy. She takes this whole journey. She starts with her dissatisfaction, her unfulfillment, and she thinks somewhere over the rainbow is going to be everything that her heart desires. But she takes this whole journey and goes through everything that she goes through. But when she's back in her bedroom, back in black and white Kansas, with the same ring of faces around her that she had all along, she says, next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I won't go looking any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there... I never lost it to begin with. What Dorothy's journey teaches her is that she already had everything that she set out to find. She didn't need to take the journey, but she had to take the journey to find out that she didn't need to take the journey. And that's the way life works. See, we're going out and looking for something out there, but it's already here. It's already in here. Now, Dorothy, of course, is taking this from a non-religious point of view, but it's a classical portrayal of spirituality, classic portrayal of spirituality. It is showing us this deep, deep truth. That's why the story never gets old. That's why generation after generation 
sees it as new and fresh because every single person who lives on this earth has to take that journey. Our own details, certainly, our own experience, but the shape is the same. And we have to learn this lesson. Jesus gave us a unique fifth way to the Father. And he said it's the only way to the Father. And it takes everything that you think you know and turns it on its head. Because as it turns out, life isn't about acquisition. After all, it's not about acquiring things. It's about abundance. We think we're starting at the point of need. We think we're trying to fill an empty hole. What Jesus is telling us is the hole is already filled. We are sitting here in abundance. Your Father is here right now. Could not be any more present. It is not possible for God to be any more present than he already is because he's perfectly present. And so our journey is something very different Take a look at Mark 1.15. He says, and this is right at the beginning of Mark, 15 verses in. It would have been right after he came back from his ordeal in the, in the wilderness. And the first thing he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of the God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in this good news. Now the way it reads there. The kingdom is at hand. Your translation, if you have another translation, may say it's near, may say it's coming soon. And that's what egizo means in Greek. But the underlying Aramaic, meta, means it's already arrived. It's here. It's now. The waiting is over. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here, is what Jesus is saying. There's no waiting anymore. There sh- actually, there never was. The kingdom has always been here. Father's presence has always been here. I'm announcing it. Repent. Change the way that you're doing things. We think of repent as feeling sorry about something, having a, a, an act of contrition, being contrite. has nothing to do with that in biblical terms. It just means going in a different direction. You spend all your time and all your life acquiring things, going using these ways. Stop that. Turn this way and go in a different direction. Use this completely different means because the kingdom is here. It's not about going out and inquiring. Look at Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now there is that motif of selling all again, because it's so important. But here's the catch. Here's the thing that's so important to understand. He already knows where the treasure is before he goes and sells everything to buy the field that contains the treasure. See, we think it's out there someplace. We've got to go get it. We've got to acquire it. No, it's already here. All we have to do is sell everything that blocks that view, that keeps us from seeing that inside of us is this kingdom person, this kingdom man or woman, this fully formed image of God, but it's covered over with all of the fears and all the strategies of the four ways and the ways of acquisition. Luke seventeen twenty to 21, Jesus just keeps hammering this, trying to get the point finer and finer. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs for us to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, in your midst. And that Greek word entos means in your midst, among, and within all at the same time. It's one of those all-use prepositions. 
But even of more interest to me is the Aramaic word. That's the language that Jesus spoke, most scholars believe, that stands behind entos, is legal men. Legal men means moving dynamically from inside to outside. Kingdom is always portrayed as moving from inside to outside. The spirit is always portrayed as in motion, but that motion is from inside to outside. In acquisition, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to go from outside in. We're trying to go acquire something and bring it in. And Jesus says, no, it works the other way, completely the other way. And then finally, Luke 15, 31. This is the very end of the prodigal son. His father replied, he's talking to his eldest son now, who won't go into the party because his, uh, he's jealous of his younger son, or younger brother. My son, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. This is our Father telling us that we're already heirs. It's already here. It's already now. Everything is yours. What part of everything don't we understand? How can we get any more than everything? As we go out and try to acquire and bring these things in that we already possess, talk about futility. Talk about contradiction in terms. He's trying to get this point across to us. You know, And so, if we already have everything, then this way, this spiritual journey, is about letting go. It's about pushing off. It's about dropping all of the illusions that we have about ourselves, about this journey, about life itself, and moving into a different space. I want to read a little bit from this chapter, just to see if you can get a flavor. Try to get some word pictures in that will help, because... Trying to describe the fifth way, Jesus' way, directly is really not possible, which is why Jesus didn't do it. He always told stories and parables and used word pictures to try to get things across. Anything merely said about the fifth way, about Jesus' way, and not acted upon, leaves it not yet even begun. We can't deceive ourselves if we want to follow the way. There are no shortcuts, no workarounds. If we can think it all through and diagram it out, then it's not the fifth way. It's one of the other four. If we can explain it to another, it's not the fifth way. The fifth way can't be thought through. It must be lived through. You can't know the way until you're on the way. When at last we're ready, we simply pick up our feet and put them down again, making tracks in some direction as we watch the scenery go by. They won't be all figured out before we embark because the way doesn't even exist until we're on it. We try to define it, strain to see its shape, but it's as if the way materializes beneath our feet with each step we take, growing with us as we move, remaining blank and empty before us if we stop, nothing in front of our toes. We crave clarity, but all we really need is trust. Trust enough that the way will really be there to hold us up each and every time we put one foot down in front of the other. This is the nature of it. This is what Yeshua was trying to tell us with his beautiful stories. But as captives of our Western language and thought forms and of the institutional church we have inherited, we have a lot to unlearn. And that's what we've been doing all these pages, unlearning what church, society, culture, and our own experience have taught us about life and the living of it. If you're on a recognizable path, a familiar path, you're most likely not on the fifth way, but one of the other four. We know the four ways best and will always revert to them when we let our guard down or when we get tired or fearful. Always. 
The fifth way will be forever new and different. Never really familiar and certainly never boring. You won't see it stretching out before you, but materializing under your feet. It will be unsettling, even frightening at first, until you learn to trust it. This process is more about unlearning than learning. One medieval mystic said it's about subtraction more than addition. Not about acquiring. It's about realizing who we already are. We have to take this journey to realize we didn't have to take the journey that everything is already here. That all the love and all the acceptance and all the connection that's possible in life that we really, really need at bottom line is already ours. It's already here. We possess it. Now, does this sound too easy to you? Does it sound too good to be true? See, the four ways die really hard. And we're going to keep working and pounding away at this thing, even though the scripture tells us that it's by grace and not by works, not by our acquisition. But we keep pounding away over here and the church keeps pounding with us. And it's hard because we keep thinking that there's something more that we're supposed to be doing. And we have images in our church about suffering with Christ. That's what brings us closer to him. We've got to pick up our cross and we have to suffer Marian sent me an article a couple days ago that was really of interest to me and I wanted to read just a couple paragraphs from it because um, the writer, the author of the article is railing against what he calls megachurch pastors who are making the gospel too easy, watering it down. He spends at least two pages just slamming on Rob Bell, (laughs) everybody's favorite punching bag these days in evangelical circles, Um, and a couple others. But I just wanted to just just listen to what he has to say and so we can start to get this this distinction I'm trying to to get at here. He says, the the title is, The Bible Isn't a Self-Help Book, Despite What Your Megachurch Pastor Might Tell You. He says, feel good, be happy, be nice. There you go. I just summed up the message that millions of Christians will be hearing at the mega churches of Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and many others this weekend. If you were planning to go, now there's no need. You're welcome. <laughs> In fact, if you're driving there and you see a Don't Worry, Be Happy bumper sticker on the back of someone's minivan, you might as well then turn around and head home. That's about all you're going to hear when you get there anyway. Sure, they might come up with more compelling ways to communicate it, but in the end, when you dig past the charisma and the personality of the pastors who utter this gibberish, this is all you're really left with. An episode of Barney, syrup and sugar, a smile and a pat on the head, a self-help speech. And then he goes into this rant on several pastors. He says it's a sad state of affairs. Read the sermons of the early church fathers like John Chrysostom. They wrote and spoke with the spiritual passion, seriousness, and humility of men who knew they were fighting for souls and battling against the devil himself. Now these televangelists speak and write with the marketing strategies of con artists who know they're fighting for a spot on the New York Times bestseller list and battling against, as Joyce Myers puts it, the low self-esteem epidemic. Don't you wish this guy would just say what he means? So these places can draw crowds by going all in, fully secularized and modernized. But to what end? What is gained? I might come away feeling happy or even motivated, but have I been given the full truth of salvation? Do I feel called to walk as a soldier for Christ? Do I feel challenged to reject sin and choose what is right? Have I been equipped with the tools to be a disciple of the faith? 
Have I been shown God in his glory? Have I been forced to face myself in my sin? Have I received anything real? Have I been in communion with him or just with the motivational speaker on stage? We all want to feel good. But when feeling good becomes the entire point of our faith, we have lost our faith completely. We create the raw bells by flocking to anyone with an inspirational message, a stage, and a fancy state-of-the-art auditorium. We should demand more than that from our church. We should desire more than that. We need more than that. Pretty compelling, right? So the truth that we need to face, though, as we look at that, because he's seen something that has been, the pendulum has pulled all to one side, and he's trying to pull it back to the other side. But the truth is that this unlearning process that we're talking about, this subtraction process, selling all, letting go, is painful. It can even be terrifying at times. When you let go of that last thing that you've been clinging to all your life, that has been your go-to thing, whether it's a bank account or a talent or whatever it is that you have learned to acquire with, to let that go and wonder if there's going to be anything for you, that takes courage like you would not believe. That's why Jesus applauds the faith that people like the centurion demonstrated. No, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house. Say the word. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of faith come from? Where does that kind of trust come from? Where does that kind of ability to just let down everything that makes any sense to you come from? There must be such a strong desire in any one of us to overcome the fear of that letting go or the pain in our life has to be great enough that it overcomes the fear that propels us and motivates to go forward into these uncharted places that Jesus is trying to take us. It's hard to balance between the four ways and the fifth way. It's hard to balance between pleasure and pain. We've got the church telling us we need to have pain. That's where we come closer to God and we advance our spiritual journey. But we all want the pleasure. And we've got churches telling us that, no, it's okay, the prosperity. God wants you to have that. Pray, tithe, and things will change. Your circumstances will change. You don't have to go through this. You can be healed. Just do this, this, and this. And then we've got the other side saying, no, that's a bunch of gibberish. You've got to do this, this, and this. What's the difference between the two positions, really, when you come right down to it? It's all about acquisition, isn't it? Whether you're doing it through pleasure or whether you're doing it through pain and suffering, whether you're doing it from trying to know everything <coughs> or just simple obedience, we're still trying to acquire something. The stance of the sinner is, I need to repent. I need to follow the law. I need to obey. I need to follow the precepts of the church in order for what? In order to gain God's approval, acceptance, in order to gain heaven? No, but it's by grace we're saved. But the culture is still one of acquisition. The bottom line understanding, even though we say we're saved by grace, is so we've got to do something over here in order to get the things that we need and we want. We have to make sure that if we're going to make a change, if we're going to defend our faith, if we're going to criticize someone on the other side of the fence, that we're not doing the same thing, just wearing a different uniform. And we do this all the time. We change stripes, but we don't fundamentally change our way of doing things. Jesus is fundamental change. 
It is so different. Sometimes it's hard for us to even realize how radical the change is because we just can't perceive it. It's so far out there, so far different. We're going to morph it into what we think we already know. And that's the danger with what we do. Wow, listen to that. Isn't that great? Don't even need the recording of the rain anymore. It's just... (laughs) Yeah. So if it's not acquiring... What is Jesus pointing to? Where is he trying to get us? He's trying to get us fundamentally off of this, this, this merry-go-round. He's trying to get us to something else. And yet we keep missing the boat. We keep going back. What he's trying to get us to do is simply realize who we really are, who we already are. Yeah, it's painful to let go. It's painful to let go of these things. These illusions of control. But once we do... We will have moments of pleasure. We will have these moments of pure connection that are just going to feel so amazing to us. But we have to get through the pain. We have to move through this to get to the other side. We get lost in pleasure and pain. They're not the goal. They're simply byproducts of living this way. We'll get our equal doses of both. And eventually, we're going to move more over to that contentment. Maybe not pleasure or euphoria the way we think of it, but simply this contentment, this basic okayness that we know everything's going to be all right. I wanted to read you a quote that we read. Actually, it was in the book that we were doing with our, our, uh, our book study last Wednesday. But it actually is a pretty famous quote by uh, Father Arupe. And I put it into the, the uh, bulletin here if you want to take a look and read along with me. But listen to what he says here. Nothing is more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love. Stay in love. And it will decide everything. I don't know if that's hitting you the way it hit me. What is Jesus trying to tell us? It's not about acquisition. Jesus is asking us to simply fall in love. Fall in love. Jesus was in love. It ordered everything that he did. I know we're conditioned to see Jesus as, you know, the, the, the stiff kind of guy with his arms heavenward and his arms outstretched, eyes heavenward, arms outstretched, speaking King James English. But if you read between the lines of the New Testament, you see a very different Jesus. One who was running everywhere, is excited about everything. When he played with kids rolling around in the dirt with them, he was in love with life because he'd seen the news and the news was good. He'd gotten to the place where he knew, he knew how good it was. And that changed everything. We're still struggling along because we haven't gotten to that point yet. Have any of you ever been in love? Have you fallen in love with someone? A man, a woman, a spouse, a child, a dog? It doesn't really matter. When you fall in love, you know it. Can you explain how you did it? Can you draw a diagram for me of how you fall in love? Can you plot it out? Can you plan it? Can you pick a person and say, I'm going to fall in love with that person? and make it happen? If you could do that, you wouldn't be in love. 
because it's a completely opposite sort of process, experience. We don't plan it. But you know when it happens. You know when you're there. And sometimes we resist it. We feel the tug. We see, feel ourselves starting to fall. And we stop and we pull back because it's frightening. Why? Because when you're in love, every last vestige of your defense system is down. There is nothing left. It's as if the other person is now inside of you. They're a part of you. And you're a part of them. You don't know where you end and they begin. That connection is what feels so good, feels so liberating. That's why we want it so bad and yet at the same time we're deathly afraid because we have to let go of everything that we are in order for that connection to take place. Jesus just wants us to fall in love. He says, if you spend time with my Father, you are going to know him and you are going to love him Because the news is good. It's so good you wouldn't even believe it. In fact, you can't believe it. Until you've experienced it, you will have no idea what it means to be in my Father's presence. I and the Father are one. See me. See what it looks like, lived out in human form, to be in love with life and each other and Father's unseen presence. If you don't spend the time, you won't have the trust built up because you won't know You simply won't know, and you can't figure it out. You can't think about it. You can't think about it enough. You can't obey it. You can't buy it. You can't apologize for it, defend it. None of that stuff is going to get you just to this place where your life has changed, and you get out of bed in the morning different, and your choices are different, and your attitude is different, and everything looks different, colors look different, things taste different. You know what I'm talking about if you've ever been in love. It changes everything. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. Forget about these rules. The rules will be followed in the loving experience. See? It's not just about deciding to love, eking it out, banging it out. It's about falling in love and allowing yourself to completely open up. I wanted to just read one more passage and see if this helps. The fifth way is like electricity. You'll only know you're on the way when you throw the switch and the light burns, when your life lights up and fear and discontent begin to fade to white, when you suddenly realize that more often than not you are content, when more often than not your smile and laughter characterize you, then you will know you're on the fifth way and that you know something about it. The fifth way is a process. It's a way of living life, an attitude by which you move from moment to moment and which only exists in real time in those moments. It can't be extracted, bottled, theorized, categorized, formalized, ritualized, doctrinalized, creedalized, or in any way removed from the experience of each moment without changing it into something else. As soon as electricity stops flowing, stops doing work, it ceases to exist as itself. The fifth way, like the faith that precedes it, is the same. It only exists as long as it is moving, flowing through us and creating effects in our lives that can warm those nearby or help them see more clearly in the dark. They will see it as love. We will experience it as following following the way. See, once we're in love, 
once we finally let go, drop our defenses and connect, we're living this way of kingdom. We're living the Father's presence. We're living the way of Jesus and we will know the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of your son. Jesus, thank you for giving us everything that you did, which was everything that you had. It is frightening to sell everything, but you know exactly how frightening it is, and you have infinite patience for us. We know that we have all the chances we need to finally let go, sell everything, and come to you, but Father, we want to make it soon. We want as much time spent in that place with you, within, among, and in the midst as we possibly can have. So stoke the desire in us. Maybe we'll even say increase the pain in us that will motivate us to move past the fear that keeps us holding you at arm's length. We just want to open up and we want to fall. Fall in love. Thank you, Father, for first falling in love with us loving us in exactly this way, with complete abandon, with nothing between. Help us to be able to mirror that, to reciprocate that, to turn and face you and just realize we're home. We're home. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.